Hi everyone, I'm your host, Andre Faras, co-founder and CEO at Incognito. Welcome to Trust and Safety Mavericks, a show focused on topics related to online trust and safety and riding the next big wave. Welcome. Today's episode was recorded as a webinar promoted by About Fraud. Ronald, co-founder at About Fraud, hosted me and Vishal Kapoor, director of product at Shipt, a prominent delivery app. In this discussion, we talked about gig economy platforms, a thriving new industry that puts in contact consumers, gig workers, and service businesses, such as restaurants and grocery stores. This business model can open doors for bad actors to take advantage and violate the app policies for financial gains. Vishal, Ronald, and I will discuss the most prevalent scams challenging the gig economy today, the difference between fraud and policy violations, and how to leverage location verification to prevent these types of fraud. I hope you enjoy the content. Listen to this Trust and Safety Mavericks episode. Welcome. So again, my name is Ronald. I'm the co-founder of About Fraud, and I'm the host of our webinar today, which is actually scams are challenging the gig economy. I think it's good that you're setting the stage for the audience about some definitions. I would like to have two questions here. One is maybe Vishal or Andre, maybe you can give in a, in a short nutshell to the audience what is actually a gig economy. So what are criteria for gig economy that we really setting the stage? about what are the criteria here. And the second point is, I would like to maybe also getting a common understanding, like you just mentioned, Michelle, there is fraud, there are scams, there are policies. Maybe we can also set the stage that we have a common understanding about this kind of three terms. I think the quickest definition for gig economy here is basically a marketplace in which it is more, let's say, decentralized. And there are service providers on one end there's usually the consumer on the other, and the service provider is independent, right? They're a gig worker, and they're doing this for a living or to complement their income. And with that, it brings another level of complexity when we compare this to e-commerce, right? E-commerce is more centralized, and also the goods that are usually bought on e-commerce platforms usually take longer to be delivered to you as a consumer, right? When we're talking about gig economy apps, usually the consumer is expecting something immediately, right? So when they're shopping for groceries online or they're uh, requesting a, a ride on a ride-hailing app or when they're ordering food online, they expect that to come very quickly. So this brings another level of complexity because these companies cannot wait and like manually verify those transactions as it occurs traditionally in e-commerce. I would just maybe, at least from my point of view, maybe adding two keywords here. One is it's complex and it's on demand in many cases. And I think that's the beauty when we talk about the fraud challenges or abuses, etc., for this gig economy, because it's complex, it's challenging, it's dynamic, it's changing, a lot of parties involved, but that's the exciting part. Yeah. So maybe I can, you know, I can take the second question that you were referring to, Ronald. So what is exactly, you know, a fraud versus, for example, a, a policy abuse? How do we define it? 
how do we categorize it as one problem versus the other? If you think about fraud, fraud is the way you classically or the companies classically think about fraud is it is your typical, it's almost, you know, something illegal that somebody is doing. You're not supposed to do that. It's your typical, you know, stealing identity or, you know, taking over somebody's account or switching bank accounts so that you can actually get money deposited into your account. Things like that is typically black and white, in a, in a black and white sense, all in the category of fraud. If you think about policy abuse, what is policy, what is abuse policy, and what kind of scams run there, that is where it becomes a little bit more gray. So I'll give you a simple example, and this is a made-up example. It's not That's not how we work, but just as an example. Suppose that you have a, a delivery service, let's say, for example, service like Shipped, which has a policy where they are giving the drivers or the shoppers who are making the delivery, the independent contractors, they are incentivizing them to return an undelivered order. So let's say, you know, they try to go and deliver an order to a customer and for some reason the address was, you know, they could not find the address or the customer was in an apartment complex, they couldn't access the customer. There could be many reasons. But in order for them not to just trash that and just walk away, maybe the company, such as Shipped, for example, will incentivize them, will incentivize meaning will pay them to actually come and return that order back to store. So let's take a simple, very simple example here. Let's say that we pay $5 or ship pays $5 for an undelivered order to return it back to the store. Now, there are situations, the way you know companies work, many of these companies, the way they work is on a principle of unit economics, right? Which is per transaction, per unit of job, like per order, per service, per booking, for example, for Airbnb, if you think about that, what is the cost per unit of you know your foundational business model or your transaction model? In this case, let's say that the way the business is working is that the unit economics for delivering an order, let's say that that particular driver is delivering, let's say, 20 orders, and every order is supposed to give them $4. The unit economics is $4. Therefore, for the entire batch of orders, they make 80 bucks, which is a significant amount. So now the question about the policy is, when it comes to the last order, especially the you know when it comes to the 19th or the 20th order, should the shopper actually try to deliver it and get $4 or just return it and get $5. This is where, you know, there is a policy. If the policy does not really work with how the unit economics model, then it can lead to policy abuse. This is one example, a simple example where I'm using a monetary policy, for example. There are other policies, there are product policies where, you know, where do you allow, where do you add friction? Where do you, how much do you want to sort of oversee somebody? How much do you want to, you know, regulate somebody? you know, at the risk of using that word, in order to maintain the quality and the, you know, the purity in your platform. Meaning like, you know, if somebody comes and says they are the ones who are doing the job, are they really the ones who are coming and doing the job or did they switch switch with somebody else, for example? There are many things like that, which is non-monetary. So that could be another policy. You could have some checks and balances in place for you to do some verification in the moment, for example. There are various things in the funnel when it comes to fulfillment. Many, many areas where you can have these different policies. And sometimes, as I said, right, it lends to policy abuse. Sometimes the people who signed up to do the job are not the people who are actually doing the job. Sometimes a monetary policy may incentivize them to, instead of finishing the job, to actually return it and make make an extra dollar in the example that I gave you, and so on and so forth. So that is the distinction. A fraud is really, really very black and white, which is, you know, you're supposed to do some, you're doing something clearly legal. You're taking over somebody's account. You're switching bank accounts you're scamming somebody out of the money or something like that, policy abuse is a little bit more, if that answers the question. 
thank you for this detailed explanation. But as you probably can see, there's a bit of overlap between different topics. And that's why I'm very curious now to, to also get from Andre his perspective about this complexity and, and what's really happening behind the scene. So Andre, maybe you can uh, provide also some, uh, some information, some, some basic information here. What's the topic? I mean, we have now a new term, trust and safety. I think many of us are very familiar with trust and safety, but maybe also can spend maybe a few sentences about what it is and then going through all the details. Excellent. Yeah. So on this part here of, of this presentation, basically the idea is to share like some of these complexities when it comes to gig economy apps. And then the, the broader term trust and safety is basically, let's say a superset of fraud, right? That encompasses also like scams and policy abuse and like content moderation and other things that occur on online platforms. So it's a broader definition, uh, basically to state like how these platforms are ensuring that their customers can, first of all, trust the platform and be safe of being part of it. So when it comes to gig economy, more specifically, the four things that are brought here to help you understand like why this is a more complex space is number one, it is more fast paced, right? So like I mentioned in the beginning, when we're talking about e-commerce, usually wait a day or two to receive your order. So the platform usually has more time to verify, for example, when a suspicious transaction occurs, you cannot do that in the gig economy space, right? So let's imagine the scenario in which someone is ordering food online, right? That transaction cannot be frozen, right? Because otherwise your food is getting cold. So that needs to happen at, at a much faster pace. And this creates an, an additional complexity when dealing with fraud and policy abuse. The second thing here is that there are more actors involved in the process, right? So usually when we're shopping online on a traditional e-commerce, you as the consumer are interacting with the e-commerce company. If it's a marketplace, the e-commerce would abstract that for you and would manage like shipping and, and payments and et cetera. So you don't even have any interaction with whomever is providing you with that product. And in many cases, the e-commerce website also have their own products that they deliver to you. So it's a one-to-one -one relationship, right? When it comes to gig economy, you have usually like the store or the restaurant, you have the consumer, and then you have the gig worker, right? So you have another party here involved that makes it more complex. Basically, now the, the combination of attacks here can happen in any way, right? So you, you have cases of like consumers scamming the drivers, drivers scamming the consumers, fake listings, like fake restaurants, for example, or fake stores. So you have all of these type of things going on. So it's more complex. Third thing is that these actors are able to communicate directly, right? So this brings an, another level of complexity. So for example, the driver or the gig worker, they can interact with you as a consumer, right? They can send you a message. They can call you, right? And the opposite is also true. You as a customer, you can interact with that gig worker. And once you connect to people online, anything could happen, right? Any, any type of social engineering scam can occur in this environment. And then finally, the fourth point here is that in most cases, when we're talking about the gig economy, we're talking about local services, right? So grocery delivery, food delivery, ride hailing, for example, all of those things are have a local component. So location services is, is inherent to it. Most of these apps would rely on location services to deliver their product or service. And 
it is quite easy for bad actors to spoof location information. Unfortunately, or, or fortunately, the operating systems, both Android and iOS, for example, they have built a feature for developers so they could test their application as if they were in a different place, right? So let's say I work in a global app like Facebook, for example, and I have released, I've built a feature for a specific market. Let's say I've built a, a specific feature for the UK, right? How would I test this if I'm in San Francisco, right? I, I need a way to test this feature. And then the operating systems enabled when the user is on developer mode to change their GPS coordinate. But unfortunately, this is exploited by bad actors to spoof GPS information, right? So you got to make sure that you can rely on the location data. Otherwise, this could trigger other types of fraud and policy abuse. So these four things here make the, the work of uh, fighting fraud and, and policy abuse in the space a lot more complex. Kudos to you, Vishal. I know how challenging your job is, but those, those are the points that I wanted to share. Probably you have something else to add here as well. I would love to add a couple of things that you, especially in the bucket number two, where you said there are many actors involved, right? Customers, drivers, restaurants, or shoppers or drivers in restaurants. I will, just to make this a little more, you gave an example of location spoofing, for example, or location, you know, manipulating, essentially, because you want to use it for a legitimate case. You want to emulate a user, which is actually potentially somewhere else. So that's not really abuse, but that can, feature can lead itself to abuse. This is a classic example of, it's a knife that you can use to cut vegetables as well as you can use it to do some harm to somebody else, right? It's always a two-edged two sword, for example. So I'll give two other examples, hopefully, to take the conversation forward. One of them, you, you touched upon this, is customers scamming drivers or customers scamming shoppers. And I'll give you an example of how that happens. It's very interesting. And the other thing is drivers actually scamming the marketplace, if you will. So let me give you the first one. So customers scamming shoppers. So there is a feature in Instacart, which is one of our competitors, where what they do is, so you know, customer, what customers can do, this feature has evolved over time. But what customers were able to do was they would add a tip as part of, you know, as part of putting an order. And what Instacart was doing was to make the order enticing for a shopper or for a driver to pick up and go to the restaurant. They would actually show what tip is part of that order as well. Because, you know, ultimately gig workers are coming to the platform for a parallel income. They want to make a living. So obviously you want to be upfront about all the bonuses as much as you can without confusing them too much. You want to be upfront about all the bonuses, all the tips, all the extra income that they will make on every order, right? So if somebody is generous and somebody is willing to tip 30, 40% on an order, you know, it, it makes sense for the platform because platform is just an intermediary. It makes sense for the marketplace to actually transfer that knowledge instead of hiding it, transfer that knowledge to the supply side, the drivers and the shoppers, so that they can make a more informed decision if they want to fulfill that order versus other orders, for example. In this case, customers started doing something called tip baiting, which is they would add a high tip and that would motivate shoppers to actually take the order. And post-delivery, there was another feature in Instacart, post-delivery, they would allow them to, you know, refine their tip because tips are really, you know, they are really based on the service that you provide somebody. And a customer was very much within their, they were very much empowered to say, I did not like the service at the end of it, right? My food was cold, so I want to reduce my tip. This became a pattern where customers would put like hundreds of dollars of tip in order to entice the shoppers and drivers to pick up their orders versus everybody else that they were seeing. 
and which they would. And then, you know, at the end of it, when the order was delivered, they would go and reduce the tip. So this is customers, you know, let's use the word customers scamming the drivers. That can happen, which is very unusual, right? You wouldn't think of this happening like on, on these two sides. What Instacart did as a result of that, there was some regulatory pressure actually, because a lot of this, we have to be mindful that, especially when it comes to gig economy, a lot of this is sort of scrutinized. A lot of this is, you know, watched very closely because these are independent contractors, a big, big push in the industry and push in the generally in public policy space is to be fair to these people, not be exploitative, right? So pay them fairly, pay them well, especially the people who are trying to do a good job. So there was some regulatory pressure from lawmakers and, and things like that, due to which Instacart then implemented a new feature, a new change in their policy, which was if somebody, if a customer is reducing tip post-delivery, then they have to actually provide a reason, right? Like, why are you reducing tip? And if that happens multiple times, then it's like, you know, you are probably baiting this, right? So you're probably abusing a policy. So it, this, just to paint one example, that this kind of goes on both sides, you know, these kind of things happen on both sides. That was one example that came to mind. There is another example about shoppers trying to scam the company. We can actually come back to it later, but that was one example that came to mind just to take your idea forward. Thanks for Fishai for this very, uh, let's say, tangible example. Yeah, I mean, it's complex, but also now going from the complexity into what are normally the use cases or what are the typical cases where, I mean, we already touched on different cases. But as we can see here, it's quite uh, a big range of fraud types or abuse types which are happening here. Because at the end of the day, a, a fraudster wants to make money. And that's maybe also one point, uh, Andre, if you're going through, maybe also we can maybe look about well, what is the exit for fraudster? I mean, stealing one meal, it's normally not the goal. But often they want to make cash somehow. Maybe when it goes through and maybe it can uh, provide this kind of chain How's it really, you know, like getting the cash out of the system? Yeah. Well, here we we have a lot of examples of different types of policy abuse that occur in gig economy apps. I won't go through the the whole list because there there are a lot of different things here. So maybe we should switch to Vishal because he he has the hands-on experience on it to share a few of the the things he he's seen, like the one he, he just described with with Instacart, which was quite interesting. Vishal, any thoughts here on the most common things you've seen? Yeah, I think uh, most common that we worry about keeps us up at night is definitely is definitely everything at the end of the day, right? It, it leads to, as uh, Ronald mentioned, it leads to them trying to extract money out of the platform. So, you know, policies which, the example that I gave before about the $4 versus $5, $5 versus $4, fiduciary policies are very likely to get abused, you know, right at the top. Fiduciary policies or even fiduciary infrastructure, fiduciary systems. But what do I mean by that? Bank accounts, right? Account takeovers. So the way DoorDash, Instacart, the way these different companies work is, well, at least Instacart and Ship, like DoorDash, DoorDash is a different model, but Instacart and Ship, the way they work is they give you a physical debit card, which, you know, imagine yourself going and doing the groceries, right? A shopper is no different from you. They are just doing the job on your behalf. So when you do the groceries, what you are doing is you're going to the store, you know, you are swiping your, you, you know, you're going around the store, you're basically picking up items, putting them in your cart. You're actually going to the checkout counter, checkout line. You're actually swiping your card and then you're, you know, walking out, loading the items in your car, you're driving around and then you're, you know, you're unloading where, wherever you live. It's the same experience on Delhi, except somebody else is doing it for you. So the card aspect 
is the fiduciary, the financial thing that I was talking about. Instacart and, and Shipt, for example, give debit cards, physical cards, or even virtual cards to the shoppers. And what happens is before that, as soon as a shopper accepts an order, let's say that, you know, I'm a shopper and I accept an order and that order is supposed to pay me $20 after I finish and deliver that order. The card will actually have, so it is going to pay me $20, but the order itself is a $100 order because the customer is paying $100 to, you know, to get that order delivered. So the card would be loaded with $100 because when I go to the store, I want to swipe that card, right? When I do the shopping, I want to go and swipe that card and then do the delivery and so on, right? It's not, I'm not, this is not an insurance claim where I'm putting my own money and then submitting a claim back to the company. It happens in real time, like you said, that it all of this kind of happens in real time, right? So those things like card abuse, card takeovers, somebody else up impersonating somebody else's identity and taking that over, etc. Those things are likely to get abused the most. Policy abuse, obviously, you know, as, as product, policy abuse, when we see that, when we see that there are certain things at the bottom line which are causing an impact on the top line. Generally, what happens is you will see some part of product or something, you know, $1, $2 here or there, which is actually causing a high-level impact on the top line of the business. Finance team will tell you, you know, your legal team will tell you, somebody will tell you. Those things we try to, it's a whack-a-mole, right? Like you see that, you know, you, you add some friction so that, you know, it plugs, you plug that and then somebody else comes up with another creative idea of doing something. But uh, generally, the abuse mostly happens where people try to switch back accounts People try to switch other identities. People try to steal other people's debit cards. They will call customer service and impersonate somebody and say, I am that shopper when they're really not. This is some person sitting in, you know, maybe somewhere in Russia, for example, right? But they are impersonating somebody, trying to do everything online. I'll bring one more example, which is the gig worker app fraud, which is again, sort of where is policy and where is fraud? It's a, it's a little bit gray. I'll, I'll say that. And this might help the audience understand a little bit more. So... Again, come back. let's come back to the scenario where you and I, we go to shop and do our groceries, right? So we go to a grocery store, we are trying to buy milk. You know, we generally buy 2% milk, but on that particular time, the store is out of 2% and we find 1% and we take 1% and we walk away. That's fine. For a shopper, when they are fulfilling the job for somebody else, there are one of two things that they can do or one of three things that they can do. Maybe the customer has already expressed a preference that, if you don't find 2%, get me 1%. So, you know, so the shopper knows what to do. So they will just pick up 1%. Second option is they can try and talk to the customer. I don't have, if there is no preference, they will try and talk to the customer. The third thing is they can actually, suppose there is no milk at all. They still want to complete the rest of the order. They will go and say, there's something called out of stock, which is, you know, they'll just mark that item as out of stock and just move on. So that is a policy that is allowed. Like there are genuinely items. There are genuinely things that may not be available in the grocery store. And this kind of, a lot of this actually falls into, just to take a sidestep into how we build technology is anticipating the inventory levels inside a store, right? How fast they are depleting. You know, we have machine learning algorithms that actually monitor the catalog and try to figure out how fast these things are going, getting depleted. Because if we are taking an order, imagine this scenario, if we take an order with 10 items from a customer and nine out of those 10 are not available, it's a very bad experience for the customers. We shouldn't have taken the order in the first place. If all they're, if they are spending that money and all they're getting delivered is just one item out of 10, that's not a good experience. We shouldn't have taken the order in the first place. So there are prediction, you know, forecasting systems, prediction systems that kind of try to figure this out. But coming back to a shopper is allowed, you know, where things fall through the crack, a shopper is allowed to say that this was out of stock, right? Now, what happens is when there are bad actors, they will actually go and mark 
they will go to the store. Sometimes they won't even, as you said, they can spoof location. They can spoof location. They can get, you know, get into a store and say everything was out of stock. Now the policy is that if you are trying to do a good job, our policy is that we always, and all the platforms, as I said, part of this goes into regulatory, you know, how we get regulated by lawmakers. Part of it is that we have to pay fairly. If somebody has done a decent attempt, and let's say a genuine case where somebody actually went to the store and items were not available, we are liable to pay that independent contractor, that gig worker. We are, we are liable to pay them because it's the right thing to do. They made the effort, so we should pay them. But then there are bad actors who pretend that they are at the store and they can mark everything out of stock because the product allows it. And now what? Do we pay them? Do we not pay them? So that is where, you know, the, the other example which I was referring to before, Ronald, where, you know, this gig worker fraud can happen. There are many, many, many such examples that can happen, but this is one area. And then, you know, again, we go back to, you know, repeat offenders. Like how many times are they actually doing it? Are they doing it over and over again? If they are doing it and some other shopper comes and they another shopper is not doing it as much as this one shopper is doing it, then are they, do they have good intent or do they not have good intent? Inferring some of that. There's an operations team at the company as well, right? And we, we look at individual scenarios. We look at, you know, individual data points and shopper behavior and all of that. But just to give you an example, there are these kind of examples which happen in the real world. So. That's incredible. There, there is another one that I wanted to share here that was quite impressive to me. Very smart social engineering scam in which what the gig workers were doing was as soon as they got the order, this wasn't a full delivery app. As soon as they got the order, they would actually cancel it. So they had the ability to cancel the order, but they would actually show up at your house, bring this, the food, they would bring the receipt. And then what they would say was, sorry, there was a bug on the app. You received the notification that the order was canceled. Your payment didn't go through. And then they would have a portable POS system right there. And they would say like, you can pay it right now. Here's everything, like everything is good. But then what was tricky here was the portable POS machine was actually tempered. So when they typed like $50, they were actually typing 5,000. You would swipe the card, the transaction would be settled. The person would get their car, drive away, and you just lost $5,000 because of that scam, right? So really lucrative scam for the gig worker. And that was quite challenging because like, again, like the communication was actually happening outside the platform, right? The person showed up at your house, like the platform wasn't able to see that happening. So really tricky for the platforms to, to fight that. So yeah, all these things can happen. It's a much more complex environment for sure. Yeah. And, and like I said, the example I gave was, you know, the supply side or the drivers or shoppers shopping the actual platform. What you are saying is them shopping the, the customer. So now we have seen, yeah. you know, things on all three sides, customer shopping, the customers actually scamming the drivers, the drivers scamming the customers, as well as, you know, somewhere in between. So that happens. Yeah, exactly. It was another one I've seen. I think it was also in the, the grocery delivery space in which what would happen was that this delivery service, they had a FinTech product as well, in which the gig workers could like, create a bank account with them, right? And what happened was, the consumer in this case was the consumer attacking the gig worker, right? So the consumer would get the contact details from, from the driver and they would call the driver as if they were from the customer service, right? And they would say like, oh, someone is trying to take over your bank account here with us. We need your help to fight this, this issue. In the end of the day, they would say like, I, I'm going to send you a call to your phone number. Please tell me that code so I can 
start the process here to secure your account, right? That was basically the credential to frustrate me. Account takeover. Account takeover that happens. That's right. Yes. You feel like a lot. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then the, the gig worker, they had money on that account, right? So once the account was, was taken over, they would get the money in and the gig worker would lose it all. So yeah, all sides are attacking each other here. It's pretty complex space. But I mean, the interesting question of what your audience is, we now listening to all these exciting examples. The question is now, how can you actually detect this? Of course, if you have a repeating, let's say, pattern that someone is doing this all the time and customers complaining, uh, you might get it. But I also assume from my point, like device fingerprints, certain transaction data, or might be not so helpful anymore. So that's why location data could be an interesting angle where you actually have a a different perspective on what's really happening. Maybe Andre can really provide some perspective here from your projects or experience, how location data really makes a difference. And uh, is this like the, the golden bullet, the location data, or how is the game changing with having this kind of different uh, level of information? Yeah, cool. Well, one important thing I have to say before we get into the specific techniques to fight this type of fraud is that reaching zero percent fraud is almost impossible i won't say impossible because sometimes it can happen for a short period of time but it can happen so what you really need to do is to prevent fraud or policy abuse from scaling right you need to as rona just said like identify the repeat activity you need to identify those patterns and you, you need to block those things specifically so you're prevented from from scaling a fraudster or a bad actor in general, they can hide behind multiple identities, right? It's very easy for someone to create, for example, a fake email address or to get a, a burner phone number, for example, or even to create a fake document, right? This is very accessible. The fraudsters and scammers, they know how to do it and they'll always find ways to create new identities to, to perpetrate this, this type of fraud. They also Sometimes, depending on, on how lucrative the fraud scheme is, they also may have access to a big number of devices, right? So they can switch devices. They can even buy new phones. They even can operate as a team. And, and we see this quite frequently, actually. Fraudsters getting together to operate as an organization, not only an individual. So what you really need to do is to try to find a link between these identities, between these devices. And so far, given that location is so central to these type of applications, we have identified that location is a good way to find that link between these multiple identities, right? So the most basic thing you, you need to do here is really to have a strong device ID or a strong device fingerprint. So you make sure that, for example, a single device cannot open multiple accounts, a single device cannot access multiple accounts, by doing that, you will be able to address a significant number of the cases, but not everything. Then to prevent it from scaling, the challenge here is, okay, in case this fraudster or bad actor has access to multiple devices, how do you link them together, right? And then this is where location comes in. If we see that all of the devices, they always come back to the same location, this is probably the same person, right? So how do you do that? if spoofing GPS information is so easy, 
First of all, you need to find ways to detect location spoofing. There are multiple ways of doing that, including, for example, identifying if that device has any GPS spoofing app installed, right? So if you search on the App Store or Google Play right now for fake GPS, for example, or GPS spoofing, you're going to find hundreds of apps that enable you to do that. So by simply analyzing if the device has one of these apps, you can understand if there is a risk of GPS spoofing from that device. So that's the first and most basic layer when it comes to location. The second thing is to identify misconfigurations or security vulnerabilities on that device, right? So there are a lot of things happening, for example, around tampering replication. So there are some apps that enable you to even change the source code or to intercept calls to the backend and manipulate those things. So like manipulating the data that is sent to, to the server and things like that. So you got to make sure that you are able to detect these things, detecting routing, jailbroken devices, emulators, app tempering, app cloners. You have to do this kind of thing to identify this, this type of risk. And this is a way to also flag the risk of location spoofing. And then finally, the last piece here is that you need to have something else to locate that device, not only the GPS, right? Because if spoofing GPS data is so easy, how would you identify that, right? In our case in particular, we analyze other sensors like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, for example. And by doing that, we're able to see if there is a mismatch between the Wi-Fi based and Bluetooth based geolocation to the GPS coordinates that the operating system is sending to us, right? So by fighting these mismatches, we would say, okay, this is a user spoofing GPS information. So those are the three steps to detect location spoofing. There's a lot more, but I won't spend a lot of time here on this. And once you have good location spoofing detection capabilities, then you can start relying on the location data, right? So the last piece here is the precision of the location data itself, right? So let's say that the fraudster operates from an apartment complex, right? If you are relying on GPS data, unfortunately, you cannot use that data to block users. Why? Because the neighbors of that fraudster have nothing to do with it. You cannot block that people, right? And GPS data only allows you to have an understanding of where this user is in terms of the building or the block in which they are located, right? So if you want to use location data to block bad actors, you have to make sure that you're super precise and you are identifying the specific apartment in which that fraudster operates from, right? So we, we work with this concept that we call fraud farms. So identifying a fraud farm is basically the idea of identifying a single apartment or a single home, for example, from which we identify a lot of suspicious activity, right? So let's say that there is someone creating multiple accounts or accessing multiple accounts from the same location using many devices, right? This is not normal activity. There's no like huge family, let's say with like 10 people that suddenly has the same idea of creating an account on a food delivery app or a grocery delivery app, right? So if you find that type of activity, you can block that specific apartment and you're going to make the, the life of the bad actor much harder because they will now need to not only switch identities, switch devices, but now they'll have to start switching locations and that becomes super expensive for them. So they would probably go somewhere else to attack another platform instead of insisting in doing that because it's not that easy to 
to, to rent a new apartment to continue your fraudulent activity. So, so they would probably start attacking a different app. The, the interesting part is fraud fighting is already at different levels and reacting right now, providing content at different levels. But I would like to pick one question, which I think is also relevant for, for scaling, you know, for being a global player. It's about privacy. I mean, Andre, you mentioned you can collect a lot of data about someone connecting the data points, really looking about behavior. So one question uh, to you, Andre, how do you make sure you're really compliant to, let's say, local rules? And then the question to Vishal is, I mean, I assume a lot of gig workers know that they are tracked everywhere. Uh, do you believe they are scared about this or they're completely okay? Or maybe see even see that as an important factor from the trust and safety that you as a, as a marketplace can actually track the behavior. And that's very also interesting perspective. I mean, it's always easy to talk about data and technology, but often there's a human behind. I think that's also an important point to, to always consider you. Absolutely. This is super important, especially now, right, where we have all, all these new regulations around privacy and data protection. And I'd say that the two most important things here are, one, making sure that you only collect the data in case of location data, for example, after the user consents to it, right? So when they download the app and they say, okay, I'm okay sharing my location information with this app. Okay. Once the user says yes, you can't collect the data. There were some cases of, of companies in the past that tried to collect this type of data without the user authorization. It's not going to play well, and this could actually become a, a scandal for the company. So first of all, if you're collecting this type of data, make sure that you are asking for permission, first of all. The second thing is that usually when, when we're talking about like behavioral information, right, and that includes location data, ideally you are not mixing that with the PII information, right? So you're not mixing like the location behavioral history to the user's name, phone number, email address, things like that could identify that user in like our society, right? So why is this important? Because in case this type of data is leaked and people get access to it, if they're not able to like identify who's the individual, the risk is much smaller, right? So making sure that these data points are in different silos and you have very strong security to protect this type of data is important. So that's the approach we take as a company. So Incognit does not ingest any PII data other than the, the location and device information, right? So who keeps the PII data is the platform, is the app. We only take care of the like device and location information. So we basically have a wall between these two parts here the platform, which is who really has the direct uh, relationship with the consumer, holds your personal data. We analyze the behavioral and device information. So for us, this end user doesn't have a name, doesn't have a phone number, doesn't have an email address. Yeah, I can provide a slightly different perspective in the, on the same lines, Andre, that, that what you just mentioned. So I, before shipped, I was at Lyft, which is the other, you know, big ride sharing company in, in the United States. And exactly to your point, there was a concern that at Lyft, you know, Lyft being a ride-sharing company, you would get location where the request was coming from. Just two, two simple points that we had to track was where the request, where we had to pick up somebody and where we had to drop them off. So those two were necessary. So getting the locations for those two points was always necessary in order to, you know, fulfill that request. Just those two, just getting the lat longs, the latitudes and longitudes for those two, you can imagine because 
Lyft being a company which also knows about the customer as well as has this data of where the origin and the destination data for the customers. For example, you know, there were concerns, there would be concerns where what if one of those latlongs was actually, you know, for example, an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, location. Or what if it was a, you know, a, you know, a, a therapy institution, for example, or a therapist. This is where it crosses into, you don't want to cross over into what that person is trying to do. Location tracking can lend lend itself to doing that. But coming back to what you said, Ronald, I think the way large organizations who have this work around this in two ways. So one is they try to have similar to financial data. If you think about financial data, right? Analytics, like company level analytics, forecasts, you know, especially public companies, which report to the street. There are people who have access to forecast, to information, etc. that may move the stock price. And such people are actually protected by you know, like there, there are blackouts, blackout windows. So they are not allowed, I'm giving you an example. They are not allowed to trade shares, you know, a month before and a month after the earnings, after they declare the earnings for the reason, because they have more information than the general public in order to maybe, you know, sell shares or buy shares if they think the performance will be higher or lower. So there is a special category of people, a class of people with special rules who have access to that data. That is one thing that companies do. And the second thing is, external lawmakers, right? There are policies like CCPA or GDPR, where we give full control to the users to control their data. And, you know, this was a big thing in, I believe, in 20, 2019, 2020, when GDPR was actually implemented, was allowing users, the, the giving them the guarantee that if they want, if they initiate an action to delete, to remove themselves from our systems, initiate an action to delete themselves, we are legally bound to actually delete their identity Right, So those are the two ways people who have access to that data are special. There are people that need access to that data sometimes in order to build products, make decisions, etc. And then beyond that, the now there is the law. The, the law of the land is that if somebody wants to delete themselves, erase themselves from something, then companies are responsible and, and accountable to actually erase them from the systems. So those two, beyond the fact that you know we do collect that data, there are certain measures in place that, that companies use to actually alleviate some of these concerns for the users. Absolutely. And there's something else that I wanted to complement here, which is also another layer around this, which is the, the operating systems themselves, right? So you have the, the regulators, you have the operating systems, which sometimes they're even more powerful in, in these type of scenarios. And there are two things that they have a very strict policy, which is around device fingerprinting and location data. So when it comes to these two, you have to disclose to the operating system to the platform, the reason why you are collecting this type of data, right? So if you're collecting this type of data to provide your service, to secure your users, to prevent fraud, this is all fine. They, they do have exceptions for these uh, use cases and they allow the apps to collect for these purposes. But for example, if you want to use this data for advertising purposes, you're probably going to be blocked, right? So Apple and Google, they would say like, you cannot use device fingerprinting and location data for this. And we're seeing the impact of, of this in the ad tech industry, for example, the, the app tracking framework that Apple has released is now blocking the ad tech vendors from using ways to uniquely identify a device. Right? So for that use case, you cannot do it. But if you're using it for fraud prevention purposes, security purposes, you can do that. I would like to, maybe the last uh, few minutes which we have touching, slightly topic which is related to many things that you discussed, is about 
When we talk about machine learning, I've also Vishal mentioned this in one of the messages. You need to provide feedback. And if we have now fraud, abuse, and other type of, let's say, maybe strange behavior, would you make a difference, Vishal, to flag certain transactions or certain behaviors with different flags? Or would you have different machine learning models for different abuse types? So having machine learning model for the gig worker, one for the customer, one for the shop, or is this somehow related to one model? And how would you actually provide feedback? I mean, we know feedback sometimes manually, someone's looking at this, and otherwise maybe it's detecting from a feedback from an external system, gives a score, and send you data score to training machine learning models. So, so how are you making sure this kind of different type of fraud is really tracked in the right way to make the right conclusions for the machine learning model. Yeah, I think uh, you're asking <laughs> you're asking a question of, you know, it's a sort of a chicken and egg question is, uh, you know, do you start with humans? At what point do you actually move it to AI, like machine learning and artificial intelligence? I like to say, I think Andre kind of covered this in spirit. I don't, I don't think he said it. But I like to always call it as human slash artificial intelligence or human artificial intelligence, which is, it is always a combination of, you know, even with the models, if you think about it, that there is a risk that the models sometimes, a lot of times they need adult supervision because they might train themselves and they might, you know, go out of, because the world is changing, the models may not train fast enough, they may predict something weird, etc. So, you know, for example, if, if a model, for example, to, to give a simple example, there is a uh, form of sort of abuse prevention at in Lyft and Uber. So I'll give you a very simple example. When there is a route, when you take a ride as a safety measure, as a trust and safety, you know, as a part of trust and safety, the car is supposed to drive on that route, which is actually specified by the maps, by Lyft and Uber. If you deviate from that, right, if you stop, if you take a stop and you're stopped somewhere, you know, pull, pull up on the side of the road or take a side highway or something like that, that actually can trigger a red flag because it could potentially be, depending on who the customer is, it could potentially be, you know, a safety issue for that customer. And the companies take this very seriously, especially not so much in the US, but, you know, we have to remember that Uber, for example, operates internationally. Countries like Brazil, India, etc. you know, they want to be very careful about their brand image, safety, and so on and so forth. So yes, when there are millions, billions of rides happening on the platform, you cannot really like have humans, you know, measure monitor every every ride that goes, you know, takes a side road and, you know, on, on everything that is happening. So you have to automate a lot of that. But really, the problems that we were talking about before, some of the shoppers, you know, scamming, you know, returning more than normal, things like that. Typically, what happens is that you start with, there is a machine learning model that is trying to, you know, run the product. Then what you do is typically you have like some sort of a external system, which is an anomaly detection, some sort of anomalies which is like, is this, are these shoppers, do they have aberrant behavior? Are they behaving like normal shoppers? Do they take a lot, a lot longer? Do they take five hours to deliver an order versus everybody else takes 30 minutes? Like that could be something to flag upon, right? So there are many things like that, which are rule-based, which people, generally people develop, you know, it's easy to develop a rule-based system and kind of like look at the database and look at these timestamps, et cetera, which you're tracking. So it starts there. And then, you know, somebody will generally write a script or write some sort of a simple program which will generate some alerts and notify the operations teams. And the operations teams will usually, the human intelligence, they will usually fire some warning shots. You know, they will look at certain people if they are actually behaving, misbehaving. They would go and do some human review. And they would say, I mean, one of the questions that came up was, 
what if somebody behaves well in the past and now has started misbehaving? So they will look at the history. It's, it's not a machine learning model might just go and block a certain shopper. But that's maybe not the right thing to do because it is circumstantial. Right? At the end of the day, we are working with humans who are imperfect. Right? So other humans, you know, operations teams, for example, might look at that, might fire some warning shots, ask them, communicate with them. Was something, did something go wrong? Why did you take five hours to deliver an order? Which we thought it would only take you 20 or 30 minutes to deliver. So those things happen. But beyond that, if there are things that happen at scale, like I said, right, you know, people deviating from a route, taking side lanes and all of that, then you have to build a machine learning model where you're trying to figure out if, uh, depending on the context, who was the passenger? Was it a female, you know, a young female in the, in the car? What country was this happening in? Is this in an urban area or a suburban area? What was the time of the day? Right? There are so many factors which a human cannot actually objectively evaluate. So you need machine learning systems to flag that. And these, again, some of these problems, they need instant, they need immediate flagging, immediate reaction. So in this case, for example, Uber safety team will actually call, directly call the customer, the rider in the car and, and try to initiate a call and ask them if you feel safe or send them a notification saying, do you feel safe? Like is was this like you intended to do this or you feel like, and if they don't respond in a certain time, then, you know, there are other measures that the team has to take. You know, there is a protocol. If, if they don't respond in time, that means that could be a security incident, for example. So it starts simple, but it depends on, number one, it depends on the problem, on the scale of the problem and what you're trying to do, how fast you have to react. Like Andre mentioned, right? Even in the on-demand economy, although these are faster use cases compared to e-commerce, even there, there are cases which you have to react instantly. Versus there are cases that you may react in an hour or 15 minutes or, or at the end of the day, right? Or, you know, you can stop the bleeding, like, fine, you lost money today, but maybe you can go and stop the bleeding tomorrow, right? That is acceptable. Versus if somebody's security and, uh, you know, their well-being is at risk, you actually have to react right now, right? So the second case needs machine learning. The first case can probably use a combination of human versus, uh, you know, some sort of like low-level coding versus building a full-blown expensive machine learning system. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trust and Safety Mavericks. Subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode and follow Incognit and me, Andre Faraz, on LinkedIn and Twitter.